we look in our second uh, message from our series, Abraham, Friend of God. And last week, Abram was given a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to be considered God's friend on this earth. As I mentioned in my prayer, this is hard for us to comprehend. Knowing Christ as your Savior, being God's friend is it kind of uh, becomes second nature, I guess. It should be. Uh, when we walk with Christ, when we know uh, we'll have a relationship with God as our Father through His Son, Jesus. Uh, but this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for Abraham was actually, it's more like a once-in-a-few-thousand-year opportunity. Something that we can't quite comprehend. Abraham and his family were literally, he was literally the only person that was walking in this type of covenant relationship with God on this earth. To the point that he was known throughout Israel's history and even as we understand him today as being the friend of God. This could only happen if God were to credit Abraham with his righteousness in order to be in relationship with him as we will see later when that is described. You know, it made me think of a, a, a woman who came into her bank and expressed that she wanted to open up a joint account. And knowing the woman and knowing her husband, she says, okay, so you want to open up a joint account for you and your husband? She said, well, I'd rather open it up with someone that actually has some money. But I guess if I need to open it with my husband, that would be fine. Understand that when, when Abraham entered into this relationship with God, he entered into the God, a relationship with the God of the universe that has all power, that has all knowledge, has all ability, a presence everywhere, not just everywhere on the earth, different than the people that worshipped their idols on the earth that were located, thought to be located in one geographic area. But God being the God of the whole earth, the God of the universe, being its creator. And the God of all righteousness. But Abraham, in order to have that relationship, needed to be considered righteousness. He needed to have God's righteousness credited to his account in order to be the friend of God. And so we pick up in verse 10 of chapter 12 of Genesis 12. And we're going to go into and, and uh, through chapter 13 as well. We take kind of large swaths of scripture uh, with this series. And we'll read all the verses here. Not, we're not necessarily going to do that every week. But here we pick up in verse 10. Now, and, and whenever uh, Genesis especially here, but most passages of scripture, when they start with now, it's kind of saying there's something really important about this moment in time that we're explaining it to you, that we're offering it to you. Um, that we're, we're putting it before you. And so we see that it says, Now there was a famine in the land. If you recall, Abraham, or he's called Abram at this point, had been called out of his civilized, um, developed culture of the Chaldeans and passing through Haran with his father and eventually down to the land that God had called him to pick up and move his family to. 
in Canaan. And in that land, and God had told him that he was going to protect him, that he's going to make him into a great nation, that he was going to make his name great, that he was going to give him uh, just a, a whole range of countless descendants, even though he had no child at that point, and Sarah, his wife, was barren, unable to have children. And we see that there was a famine in the land that God had called Abraham to come and live in. And then we see in response to that, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. We're not necessarily told that this was a bad idea. Uh, many would say this was a mistake, this was, was not trusting God on Abraham's part. But we're not really told if it was a bad idea to go down here to Egypt. But we do read when he was about to enter Egypt, he did have a bad idea. He said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me. But they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you. And that my life may be spared for your sake. Now when he says, say you are my sister, this wasn't necessarily a bold-faced lie, we would say. Because Sarah was Abraham's half-sister. Alright? Uh, by, by their father or, or something like that. But this was certainly a deception. A deception is causing someone to accept as true what is false. Uh, and the deception was, we're not husband and wife, is the deception by saying, she's my sister, or he's my brother. When, Abraham, when Abram entered Egypt, we read, the Egyptians saw that the woman, speaking of Sarai, was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Camels were like the, uh, the hummer of that day. They were, they were so, it was so rare to have them as a, a statement of wealth and for traveling long distances and such. So that was uh, quite, it was like the uh, really nice gift. Understand, Abraham, Abram was rolling with a large number of people. We find out later he had 300 fighting men. So he had an army of 300 men as well as their wives and children and, and possessions and things like that. It may be that for Pharaoh, this taking of a person's sister like this was for the purpose of having an alliance with that person, almost, also almost having like a... A, um, a way to, to hold that relationship over the person. Like, let's make an agreement here, and I'm going to have a member of your family as a part of my family, and, that's gonna, and I'm going to give you a dowry for that and everything, and that's going to keep you tame in my land. That's going to keep you treating me well. Sarah at this point was 65. Now understand... That in the time of the patriarchs, being this close to the flood, people were living longer. She was middle-aged at this point uh, because she did live to age 127. 
But uh, so middle aged, but I think that she's still. It's said here that she's beautiful. Um, she's kind of cougar um, material here in terms of her attractiveness. Um, but there's definitely some weird ethics going on here for the Egyptian people and for Abraham. It says, But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, his Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. It's a shame here to see a pagan person teaching God's man a moral lesson. Uh, It's a a sad picture. This is not a good day for Abram at all, uh, this whole season. It's definitely much further than a mistake. Abram is not trusting and obeying the God who had promised to take care of him. So we continue on into chapter 13. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had. And Lot, this is Abram's nephew, as you recall, with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. You might recall from last week that that was the place that Abram settled there uh, in verse 8 of chapter 12 where Abram finally came into the land and worshipped the Lord, uh, building his altar and trusting the Lord there amidst the cities of pagan people. And we read uh, the last sentence here, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And at the same time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So it wasn't just Abram and Lot there dwelling in the land. It was, it was already inhabited, if you remember, by a people that God had told Abram, you're going you're gonna to take this land from all these people one day. Your descendants are going to cover the hills of this land. And they're trying to navigate with their flocks, Abram and Lot, and, and their great wealth and their, their great herds. They're trying to navigate through this area, even among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And recall, the famine is still going on. They were kicked out of Egypt uh, mid-famine and sent back up to what God, the land which God had promised to Abram and his descendants. And we read in verse 8, Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. And if you take the the left hand, I will go to the right. And if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. 
Abram is exercising immense humility and um, deferring to Lot, certainly uh, in his position as being his uncle in, with his age and his, his capabilities and, and his 300 fighting men. He could have said, uh, listen, boy, uh, you can have that area over there. See you. But he doesn't do that. We see a reemergence of a trust in his God here. But we also see that Lot um, had eyes for something other than following the Lord. It says, And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. And in the direction of Zor, this was before the Lord had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, something that we will learn about in this series. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. So he chose for himself all of this lush green area that he looks at, and he's like, this looks a lot like how the Nile fed the desert lands of Egypt. And so this, this area is famine-proof. And it says he took all of it. Uh, remember, there's, there's still cities of pagan people here, so it's not like he was able to claim all of this land. But basically he's saying, okay, Abram, I'll take all that green lush land over there that's constantly fed by the Jordan River. It says, uh, thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. You can't blame Lot for wanting to live amidst the cities. He had been a nomad, and it was intense. Anyways, I'm sorry. It's not, it's not a dad joke Sunday. But um, there you go. So we read in verse 13, Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Warren Wearsby says, The heart of every problem is the, pro- is the problem in the heart. Lot's heart was centered on wealth and worldly achievement, while Abraham wanted only to please the Lord. Abraham, we see, had learned something from his time in Egypt. So we pick up in verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth your offspring also can be counted arise walk through the length and the breadth of the land for I will give it to you and we see in verse 18 so Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. We look this morning at becoming God's champion. Abram is definitely one of God's champions. He continues to be the, the friend of God throughout his life. But we are intended to look at this passage, to look at this experience, especially in Egypt and forward, and we are intended to look at this, these facts of what go on with amazement. 
How could Abram continue to be God's man for the job? How could Abram continue to garner such favor from God? We just learned about how God promised to make Abram into a great nation and to give him the land of Canaan to dispossess all the people that live there and to give it to his descendants, to give him innumerable descendants, to give him fame, to give him blessing that the, uh, and allow him to be a blessing to the whole world throughout time through him. And the next thing we know, Abram is scam, uh, scrambling to protect his life and livelihood down in Egypt. It's as if he thinks that God had good intentions, but he's just not in control of a famine or of a pharaoh. So first we need to learn from Abram what not to do in becoming God's champion, in living as God's champion. So first of all, I want to communicate to you, don't forfeit what it, when God can bless it. Don't forfeit when God can bless it. This, this famine was a major challenge to Abram's faith. And notice the, the, that Abram reasons that he needs to use Sarai, his wife, as a bargaining chip, telling her, say you are my sister, that it may go well with you because of you, that my life may be spared for your sake. And, and notice it was for Sarai's sake that Abram, that, that uh, Pharaoh dealt well with Abram. And the Lord afflicted Pharaoh in his house and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. What he should have said was, don't worry, Sarai. It's going to go well with us because of God, not because of you. Don't worry, Sarai. God has promised to protect us. Don't worry, Sarai. They are not going to kill me because God has promised to give me an offspring, to give me descendants. How can that happen if Pharaoh kills me? Don't worry. Notice also why Pharaoh ends up dealing well with Abram. Like I said, for Sarah's sake. Abram missed such an opportunity to say to Pharaoh's princes, if you know what's best for you, you're going to deal well with me because God has promised to bless those who bless me. And then just stand back and watch God work. I mean, God had given him the perfect assurance and insurance policy possible. But yet we see Abram wheeling and dealing, trying to protect himself. I like what one author said, faith is living without scheming. I like to say living by faith means if God doesn't show up, you're going to fall flat on your face. Or as Mario Andretti put it, if you're, if you're under control, you're not driving fast enough. Abram was, was in survival mode, even though God had made promises to ensure far more than just his survival. 
out of fear, he abandoned the truth, he abandoned his wife, and he abandoned his purpose. One author says, a a husband out of the will of God can bring untold trouble to his wife and family. My family has found that to be true. Men, it, it is hard to look at your family and say, to look at your history of your family and say, that season there, that was because of me. That's on me. But as you see from Abraham's history here, because of God's commitment to him, it didn't derail his family forever. And we can take encouragement in that. Being a father of a Crawfordsville football player, I've seen the heartache of losing. All right? Kind of comes with the territory, right? You know, uh, George Schultz, the the author of the Peanuts cartoon, he said something very wise. It doesn't make a difference whether you win or lose until you lose. Sometimes it's easy to think, why are we even going to play this game? You know, Zach and I have had those conversations, you know. And there are a lot of other things to be gained besides the W, that's for sure. But you reach a point where you're pretty sure you've learned all those valuable lessons, right? And it's like, it would just be nice to to, to get a win here, right? But there's another team involved. Don't forfeit. Don't forfeit when God can bless it. You know, we see this. Remember what Abraham's job is in his relationship with the Lord? Trust and obey. God's doing the lion's share. He's doing all the heavy lifting in his relationship with Abram. And Abram's job is trust and obey. Think of how Jesus put it. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And he goes on to talk about how God God feeds the birds that are so much more valuable before him than you are. And Jesus continues, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God. Of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Meaning, what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, what you're going to drink. Warren Wearsby also says, You are safer in a famine in His will than in a palace out of His will. That's what we learn about this situation with Abram. He was safer in the will of God in a famine than he was in a palace out of God's will. You know, I've shared with some of you before, Kelly's my first four four months of marriage. Um, it, It was tough. I remember I was, I was training for a job up in Newark, New Jersey. I was gone all week long. While I was gone, 
um, our, our little uh, Dodge Colt. The transmission went out on it because of the oil change place. Never let an oil change place change your CV joint. That's, that's what I'll tell you. Um, and and uh, then Kelly, uh, by uh, pretty unscrupulous means, she lost her job as a nurse uh, at a hospital uh, there in Columbia, South Carolina. We were away from family, away from friends, 20 hours from Kelly's family, five hours from mine. And then we found out, the blessing in it all is we found out we were pregnant with Hannah. And, and, you know, which, that's a huge blessing, but it's still a big thing on your plate. And, and by God's grace, we are able to look at that and say, sometimes God just lets you have so much on your plate that there is no possible way you can ever handle it all. And it's a reminder, he's got it. He's got it. And our minds turned back to Romans 8, 28 through 29. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And what is that good? It's being conformed to the image of Christ. As it goes, says in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also be predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. One writer says, in times of testing, the important question is not, how can I get out of this? But what can I get out of this? So why is Abraham so blessed and protected? We learned that last week. That's, that's what this whole series is about. It's not because of who he is other than the fact that he is a friend of God. God has made a covenant relationship with Abraham which declared him his friend. It's kind of like God was saying, don't you realize that this is my friend? Don't mess with him. From Abraham's, Abraham's experience, I want to encourage you to let God turn your sin into a win. That's what we see here. It says that Abraham journeyed on from the Negev, that would be the southern area uh, between Israel and Egypt, as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai. These were, we, were two civilized areas that were pretty intimidating, to the place where he had made an altar at the first, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. So this is a win because Abraham comes away with more stuff, right? No. I mean, he comes away wealthier from Egypt. But we'll actually see that that wealth becomes a burden to him. It's clear that Abraham returned to where he had made his stand in faith on God's promises. He returned to where he had made his altar at the first, it says. An altar at that time is where God could be worshipped. He'll tell David, King David and Solomon, I am not a God that needs a building. I don't inhabit a place built by stone. The whole earth is my dwelling. And so when they would build an altar at that time, they're saying, this is to worship God with. My life is to worship God with. This is, I, I can worship him anywhere with anything that I have, offering it on his altar. God's people offer to him what they have as an act of worship 
as an act of response to who he is. And we read in verses 5 through 7 how the possessions of Abraham and Lot were too great for them to stay in the same area. And we pick up in verse 8, Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. And if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Here, different than from in Egypt, we see Abram releasing control and trusting the Lord. As we read, Lot was attracted to both the lush fields as well as the lustful cities. In later weeks, we'll touch on this choice that Lot makes here and how it devastated his family, devastated his name. In later weeks, we'll touch on this, but what's important now is how Abram trusts God and defers to Lot's choice. The contrast between Abram and Lot is stark. One writer says, Outlook helps to determine outcome. Abram's eyes were on the holy city of God, as we can see in Hebrews 11. I'll read that in a second. He went on to walk with the Lord and to inherit blessing. Lot's eyes were on the sinful cities of men. And he went on to worldly success, spiritual failure, and a shameful end. End quote. You know, I remember, uh, any guys familiar with Adventures in Odyssey? Uh, you know, we, we love that. Our kids grew up uh, listening to those programs and stuff. The, the character Wit originally was played, the best Wit in my mind, but it was, was originally played by Hal Smith. He also played Otis on the Andy Griffith show. But uh, the sound engineers were kind of sharing, reminiscing about um, this voice actor. And uh, they recall how whenever they would make a big mistake, uh, for instance, um, there was a one particularly emotional monologue that, that he had, and it was a tough time in his life, and, and, um, and the sound engineer realized that they had failed to hit record. But whenever they would make these mistakes, Hal Smith would look at them and say, that's one. But what they started to realize is whenever they would make these mistakes, it was always one. There was never a, that's two, or that's three. They were always coming back to zero with him. That's grace. What we see in Abraham's relationship with God here is because he was a friend of God by God's grace... Abraham's sin, though it had great consequences, still brought him back through repentance, brought him back to zero in that relationship with God. Because his relationship was not based on his own righteousness. His relationship with God was based on God's righteousness, credited to his account. As we'll see in chapter 15, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him. Righteousness. 
Being a friend of God requires God's grace. It requires for God to apply the death of Jesus to our account. Romans 3 actually tells us that Abraham and all those other saints of the Old Testament, God was passing over their sin in these times so that he could pour out the penalty of their sin on Jesus so that God could both be just and the justifier, meaning God could both still be righteous and yet declare these people righteous because he had poured the penalty of their sins on Jesus. And, and being a friend of God like Abraham at this point in time in history comes from us recognizing, yes, I am a sinner, Lord, but I am so grateful that you put my sins on Christ and you offer me your righteousness so that I can walk in relationship with you. That's what it looks like. Turning sin into a win requires repentance. Vince Lombardi said once, it's not whether you get knocked down, it's whether you get up. And what that looks like in the Christian life is repentance. Abraham's repentance provides us with kind of a case study for repentance. So I hope you don't mind if I explain this again. I think all of, and it's all of our choices as those being made in the image of God come down to either being motivated by idolatry, living life centered around ourselves, or being motivated by by God-centered worship. The picture of God-centered worship as we see uh, Abraham doing is building that altar, looking at life as an altar and taking what we have that's been given to us by God and offering it to God as an offering of worship. Whether it's the effort that we put into our relationships, the effort that we put into our job, the money that we have in our accounts, these are all, this has all been given to us as an opportunity to lay it on God's altar and offer it to him as worship. But generally where we spend, if somebody doesn't know the Lord, they spend 100% of their time in this place. But generally where we wake up in the morning and we are kind of at a default for is living life for us. And what's easier to understand this by is rather than an idol is more like a vending machine. Instead of taking what we have and that God has given us and offering it to him as an act of worship, when we're living for ourselves, we take, it's like we're pulling out of our pocket what God has given us to worship with him, worship him with, and we're plugging it into that person or we're plugging it into that job or we're plugging it into that relationship to try to get from it what we need. You know what, repentance? So, so you don't have to understand this in order to be doing it. I, I believe this is, we are in one of these two situations at every moment. But repentance happens in the heart. Repentance happens, it, it, it looks like simply saying, God, the way I am living this is not right, and I am living it for myself. I am treating this person. I am treating this situation, and, and, and I'm, I'm aware of it because now I'm kicking the vending machine. 
because it is not giving me. This person is not giving me. This situation is not giving me what I wanted from it, no matter how much I plug into it. So repentance looks like simply saying, God, I should be living this for you. My heart needs to be set on serving you. My, my life needs to be dedicated to you. You have given me this energy. You've given me this personality. You've given me this, this, these skills, these, these abilities for your glory, to be lived for your kingdom. And that's what's going on when Abraham builds that altar and says, whatever comes into my life, Lord, it's going to be an offering of worship to you for your glory. Was there consequence to Abram's time in Egypt? Of course, absolutely. I'm certainly not telling you to go and sin so that God can turn it into a win. His wealth became a burden. It became his and Lot's wealth became so much that they could not live near each other anymore. Guess what Abraham also picked up in Egypt? A slave woman named Hagar. That's going to have great consequence in his life. And Lot obviously became enthralled in Egypt. Remember what the passage says? He looked at the Jordan Valley and saw that it was like the valley of the Nile in Egypt. Or the land of Egypt. But was God still planning to pick up where he left off with Abraham and blessing him? Yes. Because he was God's friend by God's grace I love how Andrew Peterson describes this. When the world is new again and the children of the king are ancient in their youth again, maybe it's a better thing to be more than merely innocent, but to be broken and redeemed by love. That's what we see going on in Abraham's life. So don't forfeit when God can bless it. Let God turn your sin into a win. Then thirdly, wait and see God's final victory. We read in verse 14, The Lord said to Abram, after Lot separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. And God's going to start unpacking a little bit, as we'll see in future chapters as well. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring. Forever, He's already promised to give him a land. Now he's explaining to him what, what, uh, how vast that land is going to be. He's already promised to give him an offspring. But he goes on in verse 16, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. He tells him, arise and walk through this land. Because everything that you see, I am going to give it to you. So read in verse 18, so Abram moved his tent and came and settled in the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And guess what he does again? And there he built an altar to the Lord. It was going to be for God's glory. It was going to be, his life was going to be a life of worship of his God. Rather than being a loser in the situation with the Lord, God reminds him that he is guaranteed the W. God clarifies that Abram won't just have an offspring, but an innumerable amount of offspring. It's not just the hills that will be crawling with them, but the whole earth. And having obeyed God and traveled about, he settles down and builds another place of worship. 
Notice that God's encouragement is still, just you wait and see what I'm going to do. You have to wonder if Abraham was sitting there thinking, oh, good, more waiting. I mean, it's already been years since God promised him to give him a child through his barren wife, Sarah. Or maybe he was thinking, I can't believe that the God of the universe hasn't unfriended me. We learn that his willingness to wait in faith is what makes him a life of faith. His life, a life of faith. We read in Hebrews 11 as we just came out of verses 9 through 10. By faith... He went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So Hebrews kind of gives us an idea of what's going on in Abram's mind. By faith, he's looking around and he's like, God, I don't need a city on this earth. You've got one better for me. That's what Hebrews 11 tells us. And we're told that it was a common experience for God's privileged people, meaning those descendants of Abraham in the Old Testament. We read in verses 13 through 16 of Hebrews 11, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland, And if they had been thinking of that land to which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. I read this week, the people of the world claim what their eyes can see. While the people of faith claim what God's eyes can see the people of the world claim what their eyes can see people of faith claim what God's eyes can see you know there's a a game that's probably ending about now and I do not want to know the score alright some reason the Packers are playing in England but, but we have members of our family that, like, if they could know the score, they want to know it before they watch the game. I don't understand that. Like, they want to know if we won or we lost before they watch it. In a sense, Abraham has been told, you've already won. Your descendants have already won. You're not going to see it. Your son's not going to see it. Your grandsons are not going to see it. Your, your great-grandchildren, those 12 sons that are going to become the 12 tribes of Israel, he's already been told, and, and your descendants are going to live in a land that is not their own and be enslaved for 400 years. But he's living for an eternal home because this is an eternal God that has promised him an eternal relationship. If you have trusted Christ as your Savior, you can trust Him for the smaller day-to-day things as well as 
the eternal things. You can trust him when people take advantage of you, like Lot did with Abraham. You can trust him when people steal your rights from you. You can trust him no matter what tomorrow brings. Because knowing Christ as your Savior, you have a home that is not in this place, that is eternal, that is that is built and saved in heaven for you. I, I heard about a young believer that said, I thought that getting saved meant an end to my troubles. But now I know that faith in Christ just gives me a whole new set of problems. And he adds with a smile, but there are two differences. One, I don't face them alone. And two, I know that all of them are for God's glory and for my good. That's the difference. Let's bow our heads. Father God.